All right, <laughs> James chapter 3, verse 15. This is wisdom, descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Being a ministry-minded overseer means the opportunity. We must be cautious over the ministry. We must have oversight. We must have leadership. Uh, but it also takes care of within our homes and uh, watching over the children. But there is a wisdom in doing such uh, wherein there is uh, fruits. And being a ministry-minded overseer, as we look here at James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Before we go any further, let's say a quick word of prayer, uh, and we will continue. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you, and Lord, I thank you for your grace. Lord, I do plead the blood of Christ upon tonight. And Father, I pray that you'd keep it from any distractions. Lord, I pray that you'd keep our hearts set uh, upon thee. Father, I love you, and I thank you for being our precious Savior. Lord, I pray that you'd help me tonight. Calm my mind. Calm my nerves. Lord, I pray that you'd give us encouragement and strength. Lord, I pray that you'd refresh our spirits to draw nigh unto thyself. Lord, you're so good. And so, Father, I just ask that you'd help us to be a place, a church, that loves you with all of our hearts. Help us to reach the lost and the hurting. And God, I thank you for what a gracious Savior you are. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Ministry-minded overset. Sorry, we looked at last week that there is a requirement for learning self-denial. There is a preschool years, and self-denial is that which is required in, in regards to learning. The first thing in discipleship, when you're working with someone and you're talking with someone about the Lord and talking with them about how to know Christ better, it involves learning self-denial. The second thing that it involves is school age, when you begin to teach some more things, and with that, you, you, you take self-denial and you begin to learn how to apply this. Then we find here in the school age years, the disciple is trained, the flesh produces chaos. What happens in our lives uh, when we live for our emotions? What happens when we live for the moment at that time? Well, we end up making some emotional-based decisions, and it brings chaos to our lives. Again, learning law and order are foundational principles of following uh, law, following order, following organization. Those are things that are foundational to being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we, an order does not make us godly, but it makes us useful. You know, and if we can have a, a, a system in our lives, I mean, we wake up at a time, we spend time with the Lord, we, we go about our day, we go to work or whatever we're doing. Uh, order doesn't make us godly, but it does make us useful. If you're at work and, and you are a very orderly, organized individual, uh, you can be uh, very useful and productive in your workplace because you've learned how to uh, economize your time to be able to accomplish the most uh, with the least amount of uh, resources and, obviously, uh, the time there involved. Now, 
the empowerment for uh, godly living, it comes from walking in the Spirit. Uh, there's times that provide opportunities to teach a child or disciple, uh, someone that you may be discipling and teaching about the things of God, to look past the discouraging and exhilarating events to the all-seeing God, who enables the believer to do right and to judge the heart. He records not the temporal score or the the placement in the contest, but rather notices the humility of heart that accepts the outcome as coming from God. There must be a teaching of a child or a disciple to look to God for strength, to think and do right, both with, when you're in losses or in hard times and in trials, but also in the victories. That I'm finding my strength from God, and I need to learn, again, as we've said uh, in this lesson, learning a God-dependent self denial that it is not about me but i must put aside what i want to do and do what i know god wants me to do and the motivation for uh, denying self is found first and in the second first and second great commands right we love god and love your neighbor even young children can be taught to examine their motivation let me give you an illustration here if an eight-year-old johnny and his six-year-old sister susan are fighting most parents simply separate them and, Johnny, go to your room. Susie, go to your room. And, and they separate them, make them take some time out, punish them for their uh, conflict, right? But how much better would it be if the parents would stop the fight and then get to the heart of the issue? The parent asked something like, Johnny, let me ask you a question. When you were treating your sister the way you were just now, were you pleasing God or pleasing yourself? And you can ask the same question to Susan. When you hit Johnny, when he teased you, were you pleasing God or were you pleasing yourself? Now, we understand the answer to that. Obviously, they were pleasing themselves. But they ought to have a sense of awe and respect for God that they are breaching, that they are living for themselves, they're living for their emotions. Because if they can learn it as a child to deal with their emotions, then it helps tremendously. And uh, so, let me just do that again. So the next step in this parenting scenario is to use a situation to teach the process of biblical reconciliation. The child sins. The disciple sins. You and I sin. So, you know, you can learn that, you know, that, that Johnny should say to his sister, I was wrong when I teased you. Will you forgive me? And the sister would say, I forgive you, and when I hit you for teasing me, will you forgive me? To which he should say yes. Then both of them would come together and pray and ask God to forgive them and stop pleasing themselves and instead to please God. It's dealing with the core, the heart of the issue. Proverbs 4.23, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. So the approach in this scenario, it takes a lot longer than just, Johnny, go to your room, Susan, go to your room. They come back later on, you sit around the dinner table or whatever you're doing, and, and you say, Johnny apologizes to Susan. I'm sorry. And she says, I'm sorry. And, and, you know, you go carry on, but you carry on with a chip on your shoulder uh, against the individual. But you've never dealt with the conflict. Uh, and really, the ultimate thing behind it was a heart uh, that was selfish towards his sister and a sister that was selfish towards her brother. Now, this is not just for kids only. It does apply to adults. And when you're discipling adults, 
beginning, maybe someone whose life is a mess, and they're beginning to put it back together, you know, rather, just after, you know, recent conversion, after, you know, they've repented of their sins, they've confessed their sins, they need, getting an order back into life. God is a God of order. So learning how, when life is chaotic, and my emotions are like this, how do I calm myself down to get to the place in my heart to where I can say, okay, I'm responding this way, why am I doing that? The life of chaos is ultimately showing a fleshly living. You may have to help an individual maybe settle up financial issues. Uh, you know, a, a person might have some things that are uh, going awry. This is the author says, you may have to help them set up some principles. Uh, maybe a communication that will help them solve problems with family or uh, friends or coworkers or others that might be blowing up or clamming up or something going on in their life. The motivation is found, number one, I want to love God with all my heart. And if I'm having relational issues where I'm blowing up or I'm refusing to speak to someone, then there are heart issues there that are demonstrating that I'm living by the flesh. There needs to be some regular routines, maybe of exercise, rest, work, diet. I mean, obviously these do affect our mental, but you know, maybe if, if an individual is in a job that is very toxic, uh, maybe switching jobs. Uh, eliminating maybe some toxic friends or corruptive friends or uh, forsaking sensual music, forsaking those things that are leading me down a bad path. Because as I'm going in these areas that are... Uh, uh, ungodly, I'm grieving the Spirit of God and it's going to bother me more and that fleshly living is going to evoke stronger emotions wherein there's greater chaos. There needs to be structure into the devotional time. And without a regular and generous time in God's Word, the individual cannot be changed. A person whose life is not useful to the Lord at the moment has a great need for structure and order so that their life does not spiral out of control. When we can bring these areas into subordination where I can bring my will and I can submit my will to structure, to order, and say, listen, you know, I, I really want to say something to this individual in this context or... I want to, you know, I want to sleep in rather than do my devotions. It's learning that order to say, I'm going to say no to the flesh of sleeping in, and I'm going to get up and spend some time with God. You're going to have your flesh fight you. But the motivation is that I want to love God, and I want that sweet, abiding relationship with Him. Now, here's the thing. How well do you smell smoke? One of the things you... Uh, when you move, you know, moving on, here's a, another principle. You know, the real culprit that hinders a child or a disciple's usefulness to God is a manifestation of the flesh in his life. You know, you have to be a flesh sniffer. In an individual who is a smoker, they might say, yes, my car, you bought my, you're buying my car, yes, I, I'm a smoker, but I have cleaned it out and I don't smell any smoke anymore. But if an individual who doesn't smoke, they get into that car and they're like, this thing stinks like cigarette smoke. 
A person who's smoking is going to say, I don't smell anything. It smells nice and clean. But a person who doesn't smoke gets in there and they said, this thing, I know someone smoked and you'll never get that smell out. And the analogy is, how well do you smell smoke? Someone who is external to your life can say, listen, there is still some fleshly living going on. You may not think that someone else smells it. I mean, you can try Febreze, you can try Lysol, you can try a whole bunch of things, but someone who doesn't smoke and hasn't smoked uh, ever or for a long time, their nose will be quite uh, sensitive to any cigarette or any of that type of smoke in the vehicle. They're going to smell it in a house as well. When we... we lead those who are indulging in the flesh, not only, you know, if I indulge in the flesh and, and leading others, it's not affecting just me, it affects those to who follow. I, I may not pick up on some of my attitudes and words and choices that reveal a self-centered life, but others will. Fleshly living becomes further entrenched as I go down as I begin, as I continue to give into it, and I give into it, such as I'm sleeping in and I just don't have time for the Bible. I'm so tired, I just need to sleep. Well, that fleshly living of excluding God from your life is going to produce a greater smell of smoke, if you would, of fleshly living. But a God-loving, word-filled, ministry-minded leader will may use many different techniques to get the discipleship of others on track. You know what, you know what, if you're struggling to wake up, why don't you go to bed a little bit earlier? Why don't you watch something less and get up earlier or set two, three, four alarms to get yourself up? I know some people may struggle more than others to wake up, but nevertheless, how do I discipline my body so I can spend that precious time with God? There needs to be knowing that God has dealt with us and having a wisdom, plenty of wisdom. And then we're, we are to rear our children, our daughter, uh, that she would love God. That's our desire. <laughs> you know, it's kind of fearful at times that uh, you don't know, think, oh, I've got my faults. And I'm like, Lord, please help. You know? <laughs> uh, but the problem is oftentimes we haven't been listening to God in our lives, and we end up being not as useful as we could be for the Lord, because again, we're only dealing with a little area of our life, but the rest of my life, I'm, be, I'm still using and living for myself. And that produces quite a bit of problems. Now, in spiritual parenting, the teen years, uh, in serving, let's look at this. The teen years, a servant is deployed. Let's look at John 15, verse 1. John 15, verse 1. John 15, 1. Let me get a drink of water here real quick. John 15, 1, it reads, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. 
Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, the purpose for this training is God-dependent self-denial, with a renewal of our mind towards Christ-likeness, the disciple. But, this disciple, in their teen years, they can be an effective servant for Christ. You want this child, the teen, young, young, not this child, but this young person, the young adult, the teenager, to be a servant leader. Now, a Christian teen, you know, ages 13 through 19, can be biblically discipled, God-loving, ministry-minded, and they can have parents, ministry-minded parents, who should be consistently living the application of God-dependent self-denial. So the teen ought to be seeing it out of their parents of this God-dependent self-denial. You know what? The parents are saying, yes, my emotions are this way, but I'm not going to live that way. Because it's setting the example. It's setting the motivation. I mean, uh, and, and then obviously as a pastor, I, I have that responsibility uh, and, and leaders. You have a responsibility for those to whom you're leading to be setting the example. And uh, if a teen has learned well the lessons, you know, his parents can now function more as coaches. When the child, maybe the teen, the young adult, they, they mess up, you can give some advice rather than in the, the you know our daughter's age uh, where you would give some correction like a timeout or something but in the teen years it can be more coaching rather than trying to get to the teen years and like <laughs> as the author he mentions he says you know you deal with the correction when they're younger and they're older now there's always different things that go on and, and i'm just taking what he says here but generous doses of encouragement to persevere, to keep on, to, to keep being a servant. You know, a welcome trend in, in churches, as Christian schools, is maybe taking a group of teens and adults on short-term mission trips, and that'd be a lovely thing to do someday here. But just get out and serve. Get out, serve in different parts, help with church plants, help in mission trips elsewhere, but get excited about seeing God work. Get excited about being a part of the program that God has uh, God's created. Rather than putting aside uh, what they want and all of this stuff, there can be fun in serving the Lord. Serving as a support staff at Christian camps or steady job, you know, there can be a, a jobs, but if that job is taking that child away from the Lord and away from church, it's, it's not going to be helpful. You know, it can be that a parent could uh, be supporting a child down a path of life wherein maybe they're very materialistic, that the thing that matters the most is that you buy the, the latest and greatest, or you buy the nicest, or, uh, I mean, it is nice to buy, I mean, it is good to buy nice things, but you put such a preemphasis upon, uh, emphasis upon these things more than a service to God, and the child's going to pick up you know, and, and it was something I remember as a child myself when I was a teen years, picking up of that very thing that it was all about 
the, the, the what you possess more than what you, you, know, you profess. And a, a, a careful parents, as he's, this author is talking, he says, you know, be in the discipleship, there's many times someone whom you're discipling as an adult and they get a job uh, and there's some really bad influences there. They begin to slip a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. I mean, it's the same in teenage years, right? Maybe there's bad friends and they begin to slip. Uh, a parental oversight understands, listen, this isn't the best for this child. I'm going to ask them, you know, to deal with it. I don't want to unravel the years that I have invested into them. I don't want to unravel the years invested into someone who's discipled. So you're continuing oversight. You're watching over someone else. You know, obviously as a discipler to a disciplee, as you're watching and you're walking with someone in their walk with the Lord, as you're helping them and, and encouraging them and, and to do right, it's not to be uh, a dictatorial, it's not to be tyrannical, it's the, the minds that listen. You're, you know, as you get to know one another, you realize that there's some things that maybe an individual might struggle with more than others. And if you're trying to get away from a particular habit and your job brings you back by that habit, it's not going to be helpful. There was an eighth grade girl that came up to a preacher at the end of a service one time and she gave him some baked goods. And she was a part of some teens in a youth group, part of a doulos group, they called themselves, which means doulos is servant. Uh, there in doulos is Greek, but doulos means servant. And they were the servants for Christ. And they wanted to serve others. Mind, good mindset. Let's look for the Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. If you think about this, in discipleship, it really does involve uh, ministering to other people. You know, I love God and love your neighbors yourself, that it's about serving others. The Philippians, excuse me, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. I said Ephesians 4, 12. So it says here, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Here is all of this. I'm now, verse 11 uh, is the first part of this sentence. Uh, but he gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. But in all of this, what we find in verse 12, perfecting, work, and edifying. Here is service. The perfecting is the maturing of the saints. and As a leader does, for the work of the ministry, there are many things that are involved in making a church run. For the edifying, when someone comes to church, and maybe they're having a hard day, and you come along and you encourage them, or, or maybe someone's going down a wrong direction, and you edify them and say, listen, Jesus is the good way. And they said, you know what, I'm so thankful for that encouragement to follow God. I, I was beginning to look wrong, and, and I didn't know how good God is, but you encouraged me that God is good. You know, and, and so this idea that demonstrating a love for God and a service for others. Demonstrating that spiritual leaders, as overseers, are to provide a structure and accountability, much like a parents would do as you're discipling someone else, and should be active in service as a servant leader, as Jesus Christ would do in washing of his his feet of his disciples. Now, I want to get the child ready, get the disciple ready for the greatest day of their life. What is the biggest day of an individual's life? Many times you might think 
is, you know, a parent would think, well, the biggest day of my child's life is the day they get married. But that's not the case. The biggest day of an individual's life is the day they stand before Jesus Christ if they're saved at the judgment seat of Christ and they can answer with assurance that I have been useful to the Lord. I have served the Lord. You know what our biggest day is? It's when I stand before Jesus Christ and I have to give an account for how I've lived my life. All the work Everything that I've said, how I've lived my life, my actions, they demonstrate of my love for God and also my love for my neighbor. Everything I've done, it's going to be evaluated. So my greatest joy, you know, and someday when you, you minister to someone, it was back there when we were back in Bible college, there was a, a gentleman that we had put a door hanger on his door several years before he eventually came to church. And he had some questions and, and opened up an opportunity. He started doing discipleship with this gentleman. And then he started driving the church bus and had great fellowship with him. And a very kind guy. He had a very tattered past, served prison a number of times. He'd escaped three or four times and been put back into prison. I mean, he just had a very rough life. But this gentleman, man, he loved serving the Lord. He loved the opportunity to, uh, to drive the bus. And he'd see those little kids get on. And you know what? It was such an encouragement to see this gentleman. Mike was his name. And uh, he had also a soft spot for dogs. He, any stray dog that came across, he was feeding them. And I, I don't even know last minute, uh, count how many he had. But he, was a, he had a softie for life. And and uh, his earlier years, he'd realized some foolishness. But God used him, and the Apostle John, let's look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. You know what, in this ministry oversight and the care uh, that you look at, we find here that it produces great joy when you're doing this oversight and accountability. You're doing it for the benefit of the person to whom you're discipling, whether a child or someone you're working with and ministering to. And, and uh, you know what? When that discipler gets to a place in their life, they'll disciple someone else. You know, reproduction, of, uh, as you would, of a disciple. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Verse 12 I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. We see a sequence here. And, and then in verse 18, again talking to children. Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Chapter 2, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Then you look at chapter 3, verse 7, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth, righteous, uh, he that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Verse 18, again, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. The Apostle John is giving incredible admonitions to uh, these believers. And then the last two, 1 John 4, 4. 1 John 4, 4. Ye are of God, little children, 
and have overcome them because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And the last one, chapter 5, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. In all of this, the, the Apostle John urges them to continue in what he's taught them. Don't give up. Don't let go. And Paul would be driven with the same forward look in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming. And, and you would find a number of passages in 1 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And then Philippians chapter 1, about approving things that are excellent. Philippians 2.16, hold forth the word of life. Rejoice in the day of Christ. Uh, don't run in vain and, and neither labor in vain. And there's, a, there's a desire here to be driven uh, with a passion for the Lord. It's going to be here sooner than you and I think. That Jesus will come back. And I'm going to have to stand at that judgment seat. How have I used my time? How have I used my tongue? How have I used my talents? What have I done for the Lord? What have I done? How have I used? How have I loved the Lord and loved my neighbor? How have I, you know, honored the Lord in the local church? And you know, you think about all of these things that are here. I, I have a great day ahead of me. And as we reflect upon this. Really, the, the epistle of 2 Corinthians, the letter or the epistle of 2 Corinthians is Paul's autobiography of his ministry. He wanted to gain a biblical, uh, he wants us to gain a biblical perspective of his uh, mindset. And uh, as we look at this, this epistle is filled, you know, if you want to look at, read this, you know, references such as these uh, that you can find. And let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. There's several different passages that you'll find here. But the, the mindset of the Apostle Paul is always for the ministering to others. You know, he talks about bringing me the parchments and stuff there in 2 Timothy, but nevertheless, he's still wanting to study and know God's Word that he can be able to minister to others. It's all about all that he does for the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, who comforteth us, in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. You might have some hard times in your life. Sometimes hard times come because of sin. Other times hard times come because God wants to show others that there's a believer that will trust Him through the hard times. So that you can comfort someone else, someone else down the road, years later, months later, days later, they might be struggling, and as you encourage them, an opportunity to say, listen, I've been in your shoes, I know where you're at, and here's how God helped me. Or an individual that says, listen, I, I, I've been in that position of difficulty made because of bad choices, and here's how God helped me out of it. Let's look at verse 6. 
And whether we be afflicted is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. What's he saying here? The Apostle Paul is saying, listen, I've God-dependent self-denial. I'm doing it. Whether we be afflicted, it's for your consolation and salvation. It's for your comfort and for your salvation, you know, from ceasing to live for sin, ceasing to live for yourself it wouldn't just necessarily be salvation you know into christ but a salvation from living our lives uh, for our flesh he says here verse 7 and our hope of you is steadfast knowing that as ye are partakers of the suffering so shall ye be also of the consolation you can be consoled as you serve christ there's going to be opposition there's going to be individuals that don't like you The Apostle Paul is saying, listen, our hope in you is that you'll be steadfast. You're not going to move when the hard times come. When the winds and the waves of trials and tribulations come upon you, you're going to stand firm. Then in verse 12, for our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. So he's saying, listen, there's a rejoicing uh, more abundantly to you word. And then verse 15, and and in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before that ye might have a second benefit. The Apostle Paul says, listen, I know you're encouraged when I come. And then verse 24. Not for that we have dominion over your faith. Apostle Paul is saying, listen, I don't want to be a pope. I don't want to be a leader over your faith. Jesus is. He says, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. He says, listen, all we're trying to do is help prop you up so you can keep your faith in Christ and have the joy that God wants to give to you. And this epistle is filled with references such as these. You could read and go through and look at uh, the ways in this epistle you know, that speaks of concerns for others and spiritual growth. That is the desire. Now, a word to disciple ma- uh, makers in this. Uh, ministering in the milieu, mil- the word milieu means an environment or a setting. And the mandate of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. Let's go there. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. And verse 6, for context, and these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. It underscores the necessity for spiritual leaders to take advantage of informal times. You're sitting down, you're standing up, you're walking around your house, you're lying down, you're moving around your house and you use these opportunities as you're ministering, as you're talking with people, uh, as you're interacting with children to use these mundane activities to exemplify uh, truths from the scriptures and use them. You know, sometimes uh, our daughter might have something going on and, and uh, she exhibits a strong personality. And using these times of, uh, you know, learning some things, 
to understand better what God expects of us. And as I'm doing it with her, it's also, you know, a reflection on myself saying, hey, God's saying, listen, there's some things I want you to deal with. You know, a follower's ministry-minded leaders will be alert to a follower's failures, their conflicts, their weaknesses, their habits, their strengths, and their temperament. And sometimes there's, you know, when you're discipling someone else, it's, it's not conducive to say something at that moment because it's going to do more damage than good. And, and so you hold off saying something. But in the midst of the normal environment, as the milieu there, right, ministering in the milieu in the the normal times of life, when you're just kind of laying around the house or whatever you're doing, you're using all of these to exemplify and teach biblical truths. And so you use these things to personalize a curriculum. You know, uh, Eliana, she, when we, she has a time out or whatever, and afterwards, you know, she just says, you know, she wants a hug and, and a, a reinforcement that we love her and we care for her and, you know, a family is a, you know, it's a workshop for discipleship as a family, and being alert, uh, being alert in my own life when maybe I'm interacting with others in a particular fashion, and I realize, listen, this isn't going right. There's something in my own heart that isn't right. I need to correct it. So uh, learning that growth and uh, moving forward, exposing those spiritual deficiencies in my life as God does. We must resist the urge uh, to get away from it all. And uh, that is a thing that oftentimes we'll go through, and I'm not going to be able to uh, go any further tonight for the sake of time. But uh, you know what? Many times our response to unsavory or unfavorable circumstances when the pressure comes on uh, is to get away, to run away, to leave, to to, to fail, you know, uh, I remember, you know, sometimes someone might say, uh, they won't answer my calls, they won't do this, right? And, and we leave that situation because it's become uncomfortable. And uh, we're going to talk about that next week, how to deal with pressure. I've got a handout for you, uh, and Lord willing, we'll go through that next week. A handout, uh, you know, don't think that just a change of scenery, a change of pace of life is going to solve your problem when that pressure comes. So how do I deal with pressure of life? You know what, this is really where the rubber meets the road. God-dependent self-denial. It's easy for me to preach, but once I step down from here and begin to interact and and get out of the world and uh, talk with others, it becomes a challenge. Because I have to deal with my own filthy flesh. And this whole idea of a ministry-minded oversight is looking out for others to whom I lead, and at the same time also making sure that I'm checking myself, and that I'm allowing God to check me and show me, hey, there's some areas in your life that when the pressure comes, you respond in some inappropriate ways and you need to correct that. You know what, our whole life is a process of growing. We're always growing as believers. We've never arrived yet. None of us are perfect. And so in simple faith, we just simply come to the Lord and we ask Him to help us to be all that we can be for His honor 